Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground. Alternative activists, empowerment, talk radio. Speaking truth to power and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro. That's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? As you honor our forefathers and foremothers, I urge you to honor our living heroes. When you honor the names of Nat Turner, Harriet Tubman, and Malcolm X, I urge you to honor the names of Geronimo Gijaga, Sundiata Akoli, Matulu Shakur, and Mumia Abu-Jamal. America's chickens are coming home to roost. Violence begets violence. Hatred begets hatred. And terrorism begets terrorism. Our common ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Thank you for being with us. Stay tuned. Indeed, thank you for being with us on this June 2nd, 2012 at Our Common Ground. This is the place where we get serious on the issues. And I am Janice Graham. So glad to have you. For our listeners who are out there who would like to join in our chat room, you can do so by joining uh, those who listen and chat during our broadcast at blogtalkradio.com backslash OCG. Tonight at Our Common Ground on two pages. First page, our guest is uh, attorney, president of the Public Banking Institute and author of Web of Debt and Forbidden Medicine. She's featured in Alternate, Salon, Huffington Post. She is Ellen Brown, and we're going to be talking with her about our money, their money, and where's the money? And um, looking at some public policy solutions to preventing and securing ourselves from the kind of economic crisis in the banking community that we have experienced over the last five years. That's what we're going to be doing in the first hour. And in the second hour, we're going to be in the talking about a number of things going on in the country uh, for our international listeners. We hope that we are providing you the best kind of information necessary for you to put American politics, the American economy, in the context of African-American experience, culture, and history here at Our Common Ground, and we certainly do welcome you. I know that there are many uh, 
uh, in South Africa and uh, London uh, who listen to this broadcast regularly, and we value you as uh, our listeners. So we hope that you are having a good weekend. It's uh, uh, been a rainy day all day here in, in Boston, and we are certainly going to I, – I like the rainy weather. Um, I like when it's dark outside and when um, everybody seems to calm down. You know what I mean? Um, you just calm down. Uh, sometimes I want to say you just calm the hell down. And when we do that, we can get some traction on where we are in our personal lives, in our public lives, in our pro- professional lives, and in our civic li- lives. There is an awful lot going on, just so much stuff going on that there, in the summertime especially, we don't seem to pause, to grasp. To, to do to, to be inside and read the right uh, periodicals, to read the right books, to read the right newspapers, the right blogs, and we are and and I was very grateful today to have a day where everybody's not trying to push you out or relax. You know, it seems like when people get under the sun, they want to relax. So I was able to 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 take a pause today to. To, to really look seriously at what is happening to uh, inside this administration, what is happening inside the very many public places, our federal agencies and what they are doing and how this public craziness and madness is affecting how our public servants respond in their jobs. I mean... All of it, there are all of this is dynamic, and there are intersections, um, intersections everywhere. But in our first page tonight, we're going to be visiting with Ellen Brown. She's the uh, an attorney and president of the Public Banking Institute, the author of Web of Debt and Forbidden Medicine, and as we have noted, she is featured at Alternet. Uh, .organ, salon.com, webofdebt.com is her website. Tonight we're going to be talking to her about America's money. It was Thomas Jefferson who said, if the American people ever allow private banks to control the issue of their currency, first by inflation, then by deflation, the banks and the corporations will grow up around them, will deprive the people of all property until their children wake up homeless on the continent, their fathers conquered. The issuing power should be taken from the banks and restored to the people to whom it properly belongs. And our guest tonight talks about reclaiming sovereignty over our money in America. Ellen Brown, thank you so very much for joining us here at Our Common Ground. Oh, thanks, Janice. Good to talk to you. 
I'm I'm really excited uh, about having you because it is not often that people who get an opportunity to see the inside of vast institutions and vast structures like our economy and look at crisis from the inside and also come with solutions. Um, I know that um, one of the things that you do best um, is is research. (laughs) I'm amazed at all of this stuff that it seems that nobody knew but Ellen Brown. Tell us how you got started and looking at at the economy um and 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 you really help us to kind of crawl from under the rubble of both Wall Street and the banks. Tell us about how you got started on this issue after having spent so much time in in uh, Guatemala and the Honduras and and in Kenya. How did how did this intersect with that? Uh, well, my, I'm an attorney by training, and I did a lot of paperwork there, and I did a lot of research there, so I'm actually a researcher by training. Um, but my ex-husband burned out of uh, Beverly Hills Law and wanted to go into the Foreign Service, and so so we did, and so that gave me a chance to write. We're, we're 11 years abroad, and so I did a lot of research there and wrote and wrote. And um, at first I was interested in health and the politics of health and that's what I wrote on I actually have 10 books on that I had a lot I represented several alternative healthcare practitioners one who was um, a Tijuana cancer therapist who was kidnapped from his Tijuana clinic taken to Brownsville Texas and tried for fraud the alleged fraud being that he had a um, a high rate of cure he didn't actually use that word but that was uh, for cancer and, you know, only doctors are allowed to use the word cure. So um, he was actually convicted and spent four and a half years in jail for that, which was quite horrible. So so I started to see the whole conspiracy element, you know, that there was something mm-hmm. going on here that wasn't just, there was something unfair and crooked and corrupt. And so in the course of my research and all that, I, I learned that the um, banking cartel and the, and the medical cartel or or the drug cartel are essentially the same thing that they go back to the, a Rockefeller cartel of the you know turn of the turn of the beginning of the 20th century and that where they get their power is from the power to create money that in fact virtually all of our money is created not by the government as most people think but by banks they, whenever they make a loan they they simply write that on their books so they write it as a as a uh, liability to themselves on one side of their books and as an asset to themselves on the other side. And so they've got a plus one and a minus one. So they say they haven't actually created anything. It comes out to zero. But that plus one that they created goes out into the economy. That's the money that we spend, and that's where virtually all of our money comes from. And, of course, then they, in the course of that, they charge interest. And over, say, 20 or 30 years, they, they charge you're paying them as much in interest as in principle or more. So so they're always taking back. They don't create the money that they take back. They're always taking back more than they put out. So there's this debt pyramid or pure, um, Ponzi scheme, basically, 
because there isn't enough money to pay it back. And that, and we've gone around the world. So I researched a lot, the whole history of that and how we got there and how we got here from here, uh, from there to here, how we, the American colonists actually fought for their economic independence. As you, you read Thomas Jefferson, that, that was, the, people were more aware of that then than they are now. And uh, although I think people are getting more aware of it with the whole Occupy Wall Street and it's becoming obvious that Wall Street is the culprit here. Um, so, but that that all made very interesting history, and um, and so, th- meanwhile, the internet, <laughs> you know, had had evolved, and and it was just so interesting to start throwing some of this up on the screen and rearranging it as prose, and it just sort of grew like one chapter would grow into another chapter, just quite organically, because I was basically writing for myself. I mean that. You know, nobody hired me to do it, so I could yeah. I could mm-hmm. write whatever I wanted to. I was the wife of a foreign service um, person, and uh, you know, it was it was that and entertain and play bridge. That's what we did. I mean, I had I, we have two kids and there were other things going on, but but you know, I had lots of time, and and I had the internet, and the internet itself just made it so interesting that you could just suddenly this was a new. It used to be I spent a lot of time in libraries, you know, trudging up and down stairs and yeah. <laughs> um, doing these heavy books and you'd Xerox them and you'd get them home and it didn't, you didn't manage to Xerox the pages you wanted or the, the book you wanted without, you know, it was just very cumbersome and now suddenly you could just, it was just all over, you know, it was like omniscience. It was like suddenly you had a new layer of intelligence that you didn't have before. So it was just so interesting to, to me just as a sort of quilt to knit all this stuff together. And then the Bear Stearns, so I, I spent, well, I got, actually, I came back and I got divorced in 2000, and um, and so I spent six years writing this book, and then uh, the Bear Stearns hedge funds collapsed in the summer of 2007, so I could see it was time to quit playing with the pros and get it out there. Um, actually, the, what motivated me to write uh, in, was that I discovered that The Wizard of Oz was written as a mon- monetary allegory. And so that was my hook that that I could weave all through the book. I mean, other than that, I was thinking, well, what can I add to this subject? But then when I realized that I could do the whole populist movement and how what happened 100 years ago, we're repeating now. I mean, the populists didn't prevail, but we should do the same thing. We need that same sort of movement, and I think we could actually win this time. I mean, it doesn't look like it. It looks it looks like all the they've got all the big guns, and it's we're just but but we've got one thing we've got it's the internet. I mean, we've got we've now got the 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 power of knowledge. We can find out what's really going on. We're we're on to them, and we've got the power to organize on a you know another level. It's not a, you don't have to go into meetings like you used to. Now you can actually organize on the internet. So the first stage in all that would be knowledge, you know, becoming aware of how mm-hmm. we've been taken in. And then when you, actually, when you realize it all, we just had our, I'm president of the Public Banking Institute, and we just had our first conference in Philadelphia and um, in April. And uh, we invited this 12-year-old girl from Canada to speak, Victoria Grant. And in six minutes, she gave this brilliant little speech that just encapsulated the whole. I know. Yeah, so so that's gotten uh, uh, now it's gotten a million and a half hits. I mean, it's just it just rang a bell or you know 
struck a chord with people because she said it so simply and so honestly and so charmingly. <laughs> so it's yes, really once and you for get those it, of you who are listening, you can go to publicbankinginstitute.org and you can hear Victoria Grant understanding and delivering the message about just how conjured up our entire monetary system is. That was that was a thing that when I saw it, and this video has gone viral. Because mm-hmm. it's so simple. Somebody wrote to me and said, oh, well, she lifts out this and that, and you should be talking about this and that. There is no way. If you put the complicated... Uh, even money reform obviously economists and bankers make it complicated but even money reformers tend to make it very complicated and if you put that even in the mouth of a 12 year old girl people wouldn't get it but she had it down to like one simple message which is that we borrow instead of issuing our own money or borrowing from our own central bank interest free because we get to keep the money or the interest we farm that out to banks and pay them this huge amount of interest. So she's from Canada, but they have the same problem. They now have this huge debt with a huge interest bill, and it used to be from 1939 to 1974, Canadians actually did borrow from their own central bank interest-free. And during that time, with that money, I mean, it gave them twice as much money, and with that, they did they instituted a very good health care program. It's not as good now because they've been cutting back on their budget because because now they do have a debt, but and they made seaways, roadways, they, I mean, all sorts of infrastructure across the country. And obviously we need that. I mean, we've got our infrastructure is falling apart. Our health care is a disaster. There are so many things you could do if you just recognize that we do have the money. Money is just the credit of the nation, and we have very good credit. But we won't use it. We aren't. We have this backward understanding of what money is. We've been locked into this mindset where it always has to be borrowed from somebody else who has it, who tend to be the one percent, of course. Now, when you you were really taking on Goliath when you began talking about how simple it is to understand what is happening to us. And I imagine that very many uh, people saw it when when you 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 first started talking about it as, as some public issue that's worthy of talking about. But when Bear Stearns went just exploded or imploded, did did then the folks that drive the Federal Reserve Bank and drive the commercial banking institutions begin to push back at you? Not me personally. <laughs> I mean, there was certain, you know, there's certainly a lot going on in the internet. It's it, the the strange thing is, I've I read this and I think it's true. Everyone knows that the banking system is um obsolete. I mean it has to be changed. And now the the war, the infighting is among the money reformers. It's all about what will replace it. So you have your gold bugs and your your um greenbackers, which I guess I've been characterized as, but I I'm actually more into public banking, which is that if the people own the banks and it's the banks that create all the money, we would get the interest back. So so we could put that 
that those profits back into the economy in, in, instead of taxes. And that there, we actually had the ideal model with Benjamin Franklin's colony of Pennsylvania. That's what they did. They had a the colony. You know, the colonies didn't have money, and they they didn't have gold. They didn't have silver to speak of. They had to borrow it, and they had to borrow it from the British bankers. So that put them in debt to the British bankers. And meanwhile, they had this all this virgin land that. Well, I mean, there were Indians on it, <laughs> but it was virgin to us. <laughs> and uh, they, they didn't they didn't have the money to develop it. So in Pennsylvania, they set up a land bank, and um, Benjamin Franklin called it coined land, that you could basically turn your land into money by uh, the government would print this little these little paper paper script. They just basically issued money, and then they lent it to the farmers, and then the it would come back at 5% interest, which was low at that time. And uh, so the interest was enough to fund the government. So it basically went back to the people. The interest went back to the people. So it was a sustainable system that they put, like if you, let's say you printed up $105. They weren't using dollars, but let's call it that. So you print up $105, you lend 100 at 5% interest, it all comes back, you you spend the five somewhere for your budget, and then so so it's all out there in the economy, and then it all comes back as principal and interest, and then you can lend the same five, spend the same, I mean sorry, spend the same five, lend the same hundred, and it all comes back. So it's a sustainable system. It feeds the economy rather than feeding off the economy. What we have today, you know, the five is always going off into some private coffers, and and they don't. Spend it into the economy; they relend it, so they're they're, they're always uh, reinvesting it, which means they're always taking back more than they put out, which is an unsustainable system. Now, one one and, and when we're talking about cooperative banking, community banking, um, and public banking, we're really talking about, uh, as I understand it, three different kinds of uh, concepts. But one of the things when reading your book that sure is an argument that has been presented time and time again, and one of the things I want to get it clarified before we start talking about the Move Your Money movement and the public banking um, movement uh, and the, uh, the example is to clarify uh, what the major problem might be uh, with the divestment process, um, you know, finding local banks large enough to take the deposits. Right. And looking at the genesis of all of this, and, you know, one that you point out in your, in your work, Public Banking Institute points out and underscores significantly is that this was a system used by the Amish people um in in as part of their culture because they needed to have uh an ex, uh an exclusive kind of um bartering and and banking ec- economy uh within their own communities and many of our listeners may remember that the same thing happened especially in the South, where there weren't specifically specifically 
constructed legal entities called banks in the black community, but there was a banking system that went on in the black community um, that was always at the at the topic of uh, criminal activity. You know, there was always a um, a numbers man who also ran a bank where people could borrow money because they could not because of the Jim Crow system. They could not and wouldn't uh, um, borrow from banks or use banks. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell us about how what you envision, uh, having done all of this uh, research and really, I mean, you know, you're you're talking six years of thinking through this, how this would work. Uh, well, the the cooperative banks and the public banks are would be part of the same system. You need the public. The public banks are what, what you do with your public revenues. So that it's different from your your individual bank account. Um, to go to a credit union, for example, is a very good idea. You can you can share in the your part owner of of the thing. And the whole cooperative movement is a good thing. I, I was just reading about, um, and I'm, ri- I'm writing another book, a follow-up book on public banking, which I'm almost done with, but I was reading about in the Middle Ages that it was kind of like what you said with the black community, that um, the poor people could not afford to borrow. I mean, the, the money lenders, uh, I mean, there was a religious element, but I'm not going to say it. But anyway, the money lenders um, were charging like 60% interest, huge, very high interest. And so, so these um, 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 Catholic—I uh, can't think what they're called—but anyway, so so that they they set up these sort of charitable institutions, which were designed to to serve the poor. So you had two banking systems, and the charitable institutions were basically pawn shops. That the, the poor people obviously didn't have land or anything. Substantial, they could put up for collateral, but they could pawn their small bits of valuables and get very small loans. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. these were like their very... wagons or uh, lanterns or uh, loads of uh, loads of little things like that that they could pawn. Yeah, mm-hmm. and and Catholic, it's interesting that Catholic Charities now is one of the largest developers of uh, affordable housing. Wow. Yeah. So uh, well, that's it what, has these evolved. guys can be very big. They started out as just to, for the poor, yeah. but because they were they were churches and and it was part you know kind of your duty to make a contribution to this whole fund. In fact, they were called Montes P. I don't can't do the Latin, but Pietatus. Anyway, there they were mounds or stashes of cash. And obviously the churches could gather a lot of money. And so they wound up with this very large pool of money, which then um, government started borrowing from. And and so they they, they started to be the government's bankers. Um, but they, they originated from the cooperative charitable uh, movement. And so like in Germany today, you have a very strong public cooperative um, alternative banking system it's actually stronger locally than the uh, than the big international private private for-profit banks and they actually make more profit that's the irony of it they actually did bet- better ter- during the whole downturn 
and they were the banks that were servicing the local businesses and keeping them running, and they were acting counter-cyclically, which meant they were making, when the big banks were pulling back because they were afraid to make loans because it was a bad environment, the little banks, the little cooperative, local um, public cooperative system were making more loans. So so you have two well, two two systems running, sort of competing with each other. Well, I find it interesting that in the in the mid seventies and well late sixties, up until the latter seventies, uh, there was a proliferation of um, small black banks that popped up all over the country, and with the exception of three or four, um, they all failed, and and part of it had to do with deposits, but the other part of it had to do with the intersection of the system that we call the Federal Reserve. Talk to us a bit about why the Federal Reserve is part of the problem of what happened in this nation when the banks collapsed. Uh, when, are you, when are you thinking of? I mean, we've had several collapses. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm thinking of the last. I'm oh, the 2008 the, collapse. The 2008 collapse. Uh huh. Well, uh, this is pretty controversial, but you know, I've written about it. I, I mean, I just was having this discussion today with another. There are all these money reformers, and we all argue with each other about, and we're not quite sure. But you know, after two, in in September 2008, Lehman Brothers collapsed, and that's when we had this big credit crisis and Bear Stearns was a was a predictor but Lehman Brothers was the big one uh, and it, it, it collapsed the same day that AIG was um, nationalized uh, bailed out basically um, and so the Federal Reserve at first they said they couldn't do anything and that Congress would have to cough up the money and Congress did cough up $700 billion dollars and then that didn't work. I mean, it didn't do any good. The market was still collapsing. And so the Fed said, oh, well, maybe we could do something. <laughs> and they stepped in and did the very thing that they said they couldn't do after they had gotten this huge concession. The banks had gotten this big concession out of Congress, so they got this $700 billion to play with. Um, so the Fed stepped in and set up all these various facilities that made extremely cheap money available to the banks, and they bought up the toxic assets from the banks, et cetera. Now, you could argue that that all was actually a good thing. I mean, that did prevent the whole credit system from freezing up. I mean, you'd have to understand how this credit system works. It was actually, it's very complicated, but it was the shadow banking system that collapsed. It wasn't anything that most people have even heard of. It was the repo market, and what the repo market uses for collateral is not... Um, they're not FDIC insured. It's the big money, the big institutional investors that have way more than $250,000, which is all that FDIC insurance covers. So for their collateral, they use this repo market where it's basically an overnight market where they give you their money overnight, but they want to be able to pull it out just like a regular bank bank account. And in return, the the special purpose vehicle, as it's called, which is set up by the bank, gives them uh, a bit, bits of mortgages. So basically what they're doing is backing their loans 
with our real estate. That's what happened to the whole real estate market where it all got chopped up into little bits and was was being shifted. I mean, it became the pawns in this very large shadow pawn shop. And then that whole system froze when when the money market collapsed, right? Well, there was a big... The money market broke the buck. I mean, it's so complicated, I probably can't explain it here, but... Um, so, so all the all the big investors pulled their money out of the mar- money market at once, and that's why Henry Paulson went to Congress and fell on his knees and said that the whole global economy was going to collapse unless we did something, because it was there was a run on the money markets. They were pulling their money out, and there was no FDIC to back them up. I mean, the the whole system was set up to get around the rules, and they'd gotten around the rules. But what they did was they had this very Un- unstable system that was collapsing. So the Fed really did have to step in and do something about that, and it was good that they made all this cheap credit mm-hmm. available. Mm-hmm. It was just credit. But what the, what I would say they did wrong, but I just had this argument with somebody else who <laughs> says that's not true, but then, then they came in and started paying um, interest on the reserves. They started paying 0.25% on the, on the bank's reserves, and the banks now have 1.6%. Seven trillion in excess reserves. I mean, before that it was 1.6 trillion. Mm-hmm. After the Fed did their, I think it was quantitative easing too, put it up to 1.6, and that money did not get. Well, they can't lend it out. It's it's bank money. It's a. I don't know if I can. It's so complicated. Well, it, it's, yeah, it's the 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 benchmark interest rates with the interest rate swaps. So you get this big big pile of money that is unregulated and uh comes as a result of the manipulation. <laughs> so yeah. creditors but, but did, yeah. Just the idea are not that declared it, a default. Yeah. The idea that they have to manipulate it, you know they're gonna get something wrong, even if they're totally well meaning and you could question that. But even assuming they're trying to do the right thing, it's basically a controlled economy and we we already know that that doesn't work. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm, it's mm-hmm. T- it's totally uncapitalist. I there was John Max Kaiser. I was just listening today. There was an interview of a man in China, and he said that China is far more capitalist than we are. They really don't have a managed economy. They actually have competing companies, competing. You know, they actually have competition going on out there. Whereas we're the ones that are really controlling everything at the at the federal level. They're controlling. The whole banking system, for sure, in that sense. Now, what mm-hmm. what the, what the Chinese do control is that they, uh, because they own the banks, they make sure that those banks are giving credit where credit belongs, like to for development, not for speculation, and not for things that'll hurt the economy. Well, what most people don't understand that out of this toxic sewer in this culture of greed that was created by these institutions that even people who didn't have money in 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 banks people who didn't have money didn't have a as they would say Ellen a dog in the fight they thought they didn't have a dog in the fight mm-hmm. but during all of this time as you point out uh the, the we we were sitting back, the American public was sitting back, not understanding that these banks had convinced local governments and hospitals and universities 
and nonprofits that these interest rate swaps would lower right. interest rates on bonds right. uh, that were sold that are sold for for public projects such as roads and bridges and schools, and that's where the flood met met the the flood meant the coastline. Explain to explain to our audience how that affected further, deeper down into what I call the normal working day economy of the American people. Well, it certainly killed the whole ta- tax revenue. Stru- I mean, a lot of taxes have wound up going to pay interest to the... It was, I think, Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan that came in uh, as the big Wall Street bankers and advisors and saying you're going to need some of these interest rate swaps to protect your interest rate. Like, interest rates were something at 4 or 5% then. And the, at that time, the fear was that the interest rate would go up. And so with this swap, if it went up, then then the, the whatever county or whatever would get the benefit of their rate would stay at 4% or 5%. And um and w- the Wall Street counterparty would would eat the difference. But if, of course what happened was that the interest rates went down to ridiculously low levels and this was totally because the Federal Reserve manipulated it down. This was not you know, it's not like a flood or an earthquake or something that that you're insuring against act of God. This was an express act of the Federal Reserve to protect the banks, and it was the banks that got made off with the money. I mean, they they made off with the profits on this. It was basically a bet, but they've got the big gorilla on their side that decided, you know, that rigged the game so that they would win, and then the courts are still saying that that the counties owe the money, that a deal's a deal. I think the reason is that they just don't understand it. I mean, I I worked clerk for three different judges, and you know they're so busy, and they they don't have time to really de- dig into yeah the, to dig into what what comes before them. And and um, a, a deal that gives us a lot of confidence. Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Most people don't realize that. You know, especially in states where judges are elected, and then when you go to uh, a federal docket, the federal docket is so jam-packed full of all kinds of things that you can't have what I call informed uh, judging. You know, it's all by the seat of your pants for that particular day. But one of the things I think, I think that this is the area in which the whole idea of public banking, uh, the case is made. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that, oh, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, pu- public banking differs. We're talking about what the state or the county or the city should do with its revenues, not what individuals right. should do with theirs. So right now, well, I'm from California. So California is it used to be the sixth largest economy in the world. It's now the eighth largest, but it's still big. It's like big like Japan, and uh, we should have our own bank. So California has $200 billion in the pension, their pension fund, public pension fund, $70 billion in a, uh, uh, in, 
treasurer's investment pool, and this is basically what he does with the state revenues. He keeps a couple billion around for like a checking account for you for the daily needs, and all the rest goes into this fund, and it just sits there, and it's earning 0.49% interest, and the money is invested in Wall Street. So Wall Street then takes that money that they get very cheaply, and then they speculate with it. They buy up our companies that you know they buy foreign companies that compete with ours. They're not they're not thinking about us, and they're not making loans to our local economy. So we could take that very same money. Let's say we took the seventy billion in the investment pool, and when you realize that banks leverage their money, in other words, they they create credit on their books. They only use those deposits. To to clear their checks, so so let's say you took ten billion of that, or say seven billion of that seventy billion, that would be enough for the capital base of a of a very nice bank to start with. You could now turn that seven billion into seventy billion in loans. You can leverage your capital by a factor of ten. Um, so they basically doubled their money. Then you can charge five percent interest on the loans, and you're still making. 0.49% or whatever. I mean, you're still making uh, interest on the deposits because that money is still deposited in the bank. That's the way banking works. They turn their deposits into loans even while they're still there. You know, you never walk into a bank and they say, I'm sorry, we just lent your money out to Mr. Jones. You'll have to come back in 30 years. They they lend your money out and yet every time you come in, it's there. So so how do they get the money if they've lent it out? What they do is they borrow it from another bank overnight, and they keep rolling it over and rolling it over, and they borrow it at the Fed funds rate, which is 0.25%. So they get it for virtually nothing. And the money's always there to borrow because they just transferred it. I mean, they created it. They transferred it to another bank with a check, and then they borrow it back from the bank that they just transferred it over to because that bank now has excess reserves, and so they're happy to lend it bank back for a little interest. And so it's it's simply a game of um, manipulating the system that a few uh, it's it's self interest banking. You know, many people um, in in communities wonder why people clamor, lawyers and and business people clamor to be on the boards of local banks. Because it is a system, we are looking at a banking system, banking systems, that simply it's not your George Bailey kind of, uh, what's the name of that movie that you referenced a a lot? (laughs) It's a wonderful life kind of bank. Mm -hmm. Um, And then again, um, you know, we, we, we really have never really understood, Ellen, our our, our banking systems. We just thought that's where I take my money to make it to, to for it to be safe uh, for people in the middle class and middle people in the upper middle class. That's where I take my money to see if I can't uh, earn a little interest. But mm-hmm. they don't have any idea how that money is being used and how it's tampered down for the banking consumer and tampered up for the greedy 1%. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. 
the banks really weren't safe for hundreds of years. You know, they'd have bank runs, periodic bank panics and bank runs. The only thing that made them safe was in the 1930s, they instituted FDIC insurance. So it's actually a government guarantee that makes them safe. It's not the bank itself. It's not the fact that this great big building, Mm -hmm. you know, it's not that they've got your money. They don't. They just lent, lent it out. And the only reason they can be sure that they'll have it for you when you come for it is that they've got Uncle Sam backing them up there. I mean, with that, that you know, it's all guaranteed. It's a big insurance scheme backed by us. So if we the people are backing the thing anyway, it might as well be our bank, and we might as well be leveraging the money ourselves for our own purposes, making putting the interest back. I'm talking about the interest on the public revenues. So we could be making 5% on that money instead of 0.49%, and we could be creating credit for the community that we desperately need. Little Small businesses are having a lot of trouble. Here in L.A., they, they can't get – they used to have credit lines, you know, at 8%. Now they have credit cards at 16%. The, the mm-hmm, banks aren't, mm-hmm. You know, they've cut their credit lines, and not because their businesses have changed. So we have one model which is North Dakota. The Bank of North Dakota was established in 1919. It's the only publicly owned state-owned bank in the country. They're the only state that escaped the credit crisis. They they not only are not in debt like virtually every other state, but they have a ve- they've had, had a very nice surplus every year since 2008 and and they've had a the bank itself has had a return on equity. The bank the state is the depositor in the bank and virtually all of its deposits come from the state and so they get the the return on the equity you know on their they put up the capital and they get the the return the return has been between 18 and 25 percent ever since 2008 compared to the pension fund in california for example lost 25 percent and 30 percent in the two years after 2008 putting their money on wall street so it's a very sound, a very lucrative bank, and that bank partners with the local banks, provides the liquidity, helps them with capital requirements, and then the local banks deal with the local community's credit needs, and so those communities are just booming. They've got all the credit they need. The businesses can get what they need. They can build the infrastructure they need. They do have oil, but they, it's because of this whole Um, freely flowing credit that they were able to build the infrastructure to service the oil business, to build the Mm -hmm. road. Now, uh, over the last uh, couple of months, uh, you have been talking about, you've been doing a lot of writing, the Huffington Post, Truth Out, uh, about the the nature of what you call values-based banking too sustainable to fail. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> and there are conventional banks which are committed to responsible lending in the local community. And that is different from public-owned banks because, you know, I was thinking about it, and I know that there are two of them uh, in in California, well, one in Oregon and one in California, I don't know the name of the, I can't remember, oh, New Resource Bank in California. Yeah, and one specific, yeah. Yeah, and it has $171 million in assets, but it is very specifically focused Mm 
in what it does as a lender and as bank uh, banking services. Yeah, these, these are they're they're not a lot of them, unfortunately, but but there is a, a growing movement, and that's a place that you can put your money. You probably wouldn't put your money in this state-owned bank. It's going to be mostly, mm-hmm. I mean, in North Dakota, they actually allow individual depositors because they figure, well, it's the people's bank. They should let people deposit there, but they don't encourage it. And there's, they only have one branch. They don't have ATM machines, <laughs> so it's not real mm-hmm. convenient. To, you almost have to live on the same block in order to make it a, a convenient deal. But but you can invest in all, you can put your money in these local cooperative and uh, alternative sort of banks that are that are intended to serve their own people and to serve their own local community, and that are values based. And it turns out studies have shown everybody thinks, well, that sounds like a nice idea, but uh, you know, I'm afraid I'll lose my money. I don't want, to, uh, you know, I want to put it with the big Wall Street banks because they're the ones that are making money. But it turns out that the values based banks are doing better. I mean, particularly in the last few years when the when the Wall Street banks got in so much trouble, they're doing better. They're actually making more profits. You actually make more money invest doing the right thing, investing in these these because they're actually trying to develop um, community. They invest. They they they're not giving their way money away. You know, to bad mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. companies that can't get loans otherwise or anything like that. They're they're still investing in good companies. But they're investing in companies that are um, doing sustainable things yeah. and that are environmentally, mm-hmm. you know, friendly and mm-hmm. all that. Which has its place. I mean, there is nothing that says that. I mean, there are laws now that say we only have one kind of banking system. But there's nothing that says that we can't have two or three different kinds of banking models that serve the purpose of community. Um, Ellen, we're going to take a break. Uh, Our guest tonight is Ellen Brown. She is the president of the Public Banking Institute, uh, an attorney and author of Web of Debt, and you can get the book at webofdebt.com. You're listening to Our Common Ground. We're not going anywhere, but we'll be right back. Tune into Our Common Ground. Our number, 347-838-9852. 347-838-9852 to get in on the discussion, to join our guests, to talk to Janice. Make the call. This is Talk Radio that matters. And now, back to Janice on Our Common Ground. You know that the ice cream scoop can make a child smile, and that by slowing us down, the traffic light can keep us going. You know that the lawnmower makes life easier, that the blood bank makes life possible. But did you know all these ideas came from the minds of African Americans? Support the United Negro College Fund, because a mind is a terrible thing to waste. Visit uncf.org or call 1-800-332-UNCF. Brought to you by UNCF and the Ad Council. Truth Works Network. This is Alpha, hosting the set of Fish Bag Talk, the Alpha Show. 
Each Friday, fire in the belly of Friday. The Alpha Show, Friday nights, 10 p.m., only on TruthWorks Network. You're listening to Alpha on TruthWorks Network, the best of political pushback. Go for it, Alpha. Friday, 10 p.m., pushback to the truth. It's the Alpha Show at TruthWorks Network, only at TruthWorks Network. And we thank you for being here with us at Our Common Ground tonight with our guest, Ellen Brown, who, you know, this is revolutionary, folks. You need to understand that this is the revolution. Uh, It will not be televised. It will require you to rethink whether or not your money, where your money, where is your money? Uh, Maybe that's where you start with your research. Do you know where your money is? Do you know where your money is tonight? (laughs) And our money system really is our guest, Ellen Brown, uh, president of the Public Banking Institute, points out, and author of Web of Debt, our, our money system is not what we have been led to believe. Ellen, we're going to take some calls. And our number, for those of you who would like to join into this discussion, because we're also going to be talking about the movement. Move, get ready to move your money. You know, and Ellen, I don't want anyone to think that I'm down on uh, credit unions. I have been a member of four credit unions. I am currently a member of two. And I do all of my quote-unquote banking at a credit union. But a credit union has its flaws as well. I mean, you're a member and you own some of it, but credit unions have so many limitations. Right. And many of them are so small that they really can't serve the needs of small business people. They can't serve the needs. They can they seem to only be able they can only do safe banking. And if everybody's doing safe banking, uh, nothing really gets the kind of investment that it needs. Somebody's got to be willing and be in the position to take some of the uh, some of the financial risks to do banking. Mm-hmm. And they can't come to your house and do character uh, checks in your neighborhood, but. We've got banking is a risky business, and that's what these folks, these these American communists who run these banks, these huge banks, Bank of Bank of America and Wells Fargo, and the ones that really, really messed up big time, and the ones that you haven't even heard of, they are the people who don't want to take the risk because they operate in a culture of greed. We're going to go to Chicago, 773. You're on the air with Ellen Brown at Our Common Ground. Well, good evening, Janice, and good evening to your guest, Ms. Brown. Um, I've uh, I've been listening, and when you speak about the uh, Bank of North Dakota, their state bank, and you speak about how they don't have ATM machines and they they only have that one branch, isn't that something minor to simply getting that done to make it more accessible? 
I think that if every state had a state bank, that would that would whittle the power of the Fed. Really, that would basically nullify them to a certain point. That wouldn't erase them, but it would give more power to consumers, and it would give more power to, you know, every day to Main Street. And when I speak about uh, just the just the total uh, uh, people who simply don't want to talk about state banks, nor do they want to talk about, you know, the community banking or the, you know, the the newest thing that has popped up in California. No one wants to talk about the solution, and it's done. You know, the the game, the the, the bid is rigged. The game is fixed. The Fed will do what they want to do while the media gives them cover and the politicians do their bidding. Mm -hmm. I agree. I would love to see a model where um, they combined uh, local banking or individual banking with the public revenues. And this has been done in other countries. In, In Australia, it was done with the Commonwealth Bank of Australia, and it worked brilliantly well. In 1912, when we set up our Federal Reserve, which, you know, is actually owned by the banks. I mean, the 12 Federal Reserve branches are 100% owned by the banks. They're not owned by us. But in Australia, they were going through the same sort of banking crisis, and they decided that the banking system had failed and that the the government needed to take over. And so they set up an actual government-owned bank, and the head of the bank, the bankers were quite alarmed that um, at, at this competition, and so they made sure that there was a banker at the head of it thinking that he could be manipulated. Well, it turned out he realized how banking worked, and he realized what a power tool he had for the benefit of the people. And so he just used the credit power of the country and made loans for just on credit for all sorts of development. He didn't borrow from the other banks. He just issued the national credit and did remarkable things for the country, including funding World War I uh, without borrowing from the Bank of England or anybody else. And at the same time, they were they were a public bank for the people, and so so they they had lower interest rates. They competed with the the private banks, and they so they forced the private banks to um, lower their interest rates in order to be competitive. And so I think that we could, and in fact, the Bank of North Dakota originally was intended to be that sort of bank, but they met. A, it's a Republican state. They met a lot of resistance from the bankers themselves, and so the best they could do was <laughs> was the current model. But this that model did did it's still going after 90 years. I mean, they did manage to survive at least, and it did very good things for the local businesses and so forth. So there are all, all sorts of different ways you could do it, and I would love to see a system that was totally designed to to do both, you know, to serve local business, local people, and and to put the public revenues in. Well, I just thought that maybe, you know, it, 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 I don't believe that the politicians will allow it, nor will the Federal Reserve, the bankers, and you know they have a, if nothing else, they have a history of getting their way by hook, crook, or assassination. 
Yeah, well, that's why we've sort of abandoned the idea of doing anything at the federal level, but at the state level, there's still things could be done. And better yet, what we're now looking at is the county level. Some counties are run by three commissioners. You could get to have the three of them go to lunch, and two of them could shake hands, and you've got a, you've got your your county bank. And it's the counties that are their property um, records have been destroyed by this whole MERS, you know, the Mortgage Electronic Registration Systems. It's an electronic database that, um, uh, well, all these mortgages that were during the whole subprime period were all sold off to investors. And it was so there was this big sort of shady curtain behind which all those dealings were going on. And um, it was so that they were the property was recorded in the name of this database, which courts are now holding did not have standing either to foreclose or to actually own the property. So the chain of title has been broken. And anyway, the property uh, records are a big mess. So the counties have a lot of um, reason to go in there and try to clean all that up, and they could do it. They could just take all these abandoned, foreclosed, blighted properties that are still owned by the banks, they could take them by eminent domain and then do the fair thing with them, and they could get them for free, and they could put that as part of their capital in their banks. So there are and that certainly could... would be something, an idea for uh, many communities in Michigan. Right, Michigan, Pennsylvania, Ohio, that whole, yeah. Yeah, and, and, and the thing is to whether or not but there's a political will somewhere uh, in this country to do right. And that's really the question that you're posing, Alpha. The only political will I see is corruption, greed. Uh, you're from <laughs> Chicago, right? <laughs> but every yeah, movement, every movement you, you have to realize, and, and Ellen, correct me if I'm wrong, that back in the 70s when the credit union movement was taking uh, shape. There was a lot of uh, uh, resistance. Many, I mean, employers were the the the, the perfect. Uh, large employers were the perfect entities for for credit unions to be instituted, and business people uh, pushed back until they couldn't push back anymore. And this kind of movement, Alpha starts with with a group of people, a small group of people who begin to mount a campaign mm -hmm. because the political rationale, the economic rationale is there. Mm -hmm. I posted for those of you who are in our chat room the link to move your, the Move Your Money project as well as uh, the um, Public Banking Institute, so that you can really go do your homework around this. Because, Alpha, it starts with people's will, not po political will. Yeah, I think it's the, it first, the first thing you have to do is understand what's going on. And when you realize how you've been taken and how relatively simple it would be to fix things if you just had the political will. I mean, it's just a matter of it's only rules that are holding us down. We can change the rules. The rules are, are were arbitrary, imposed by common agreement. We can change the agreement. 
Or we can eat, I mean, you don't even, in some cases, you don't even have to change the agreement. Like, that's the beauty of public banks is that all you're talking about is setting up a bank. Anybody can set up a bank. Walmart can set up a bank. There's no reason a state or a county can't set up their own bank and put their own money in it and use that for the way banks do. But the first thing you have to understand is why this is a good deal. In other words, the advantages, the perks you get by being a bank. So that's what that's what our first mission is, is just to get this information out there so people understand how banking works. Well, I think that uh, we do a lot of talking on this program about uh, the problematic nature of loans for minority and women-owned businesses, affordable mortgages. The credit union does offer some small business development, but there are examples of what alternative banking can do. One of them is uh, the Boston Community Capital um, which is um, essentially a bank that provides for um, social intervention. Um, uh, it, it's not actually a bank, but it invests in projects to provide affordable housing and jobs in lower-income neighborhoods. And um, I, I think that all of us need to look more closely at the CDIFIs, uh, which is the Community Development Financial Institutions, and look at what large banks are doing in regard to community redevelopment uh, regulations required by banks. We're not paying much attention to that. Alpha, thank you for your call. You, you're always on it. You, you understand the reality but I think we have to build a dream and build a vision about how you make this happen. Oh, thank yep. you, Janice. First thing, the vision. Yes. We're going to go to 312, who has been holding. You're on the air with Ellen Brown. Thank you for your call. I respect you. Hey, Janice. Um, this is House. How are you? Good. Hi. Thank you, House Music Lover. Namaste. Um, and uh, Ms. Brown, it's good to speak to you also. Um, you guys have already asked, excuse me, you ladies have already answered um, about three questions I had, um, just being on hold. That's because we um, have it going on. <laughs> yeah, you do. Absolutely. Um, and the last one being uh, kind of the credit union um, versus the public banking. Um, but I'm wondering, you know, with the, uh, the, the, the Occupy movement last year, when they – protested against what was the Bank of America when they wanted to put a $5 fee um, right. on something. And the Occupy movement, they led a bunch of people to the credit unions. Um, did, do you think, uh, do you know if that actually had any uh, real impact on Bank of America or uh, uh, banking going forward? Um, I, I think it has an impact. I mean, they care what we think. They want to... They want to have a good image. It, it doesn't have a real impact in terms of, you know, they now they say they don't even want more deposits because they've got that $1.7 trillion in excess reserves, and that's the fault mm-hmm. of the Fed. Um, so, so the fact that you move your money is more like making a statement than actually right. hurting them. But but our thought with public banking is we're talking about moving big money. We're talking about moving state revenues, two hundred billion, well, you know, hundreds of billions just in California. Um, 
And it, it doesn't matter whether we hurt Wall Street. The point is to set up our own bank and help us. In other words, right. we can be using the tools that they're using for their own profits. We can be using for our own local community, um, expanding a business, uh, creating credit for all those things that we need credit, getting the economy going again, rehiring all those teachers that got laid off, et cetera. I mean, it's really appalling. I, um, Janice started off this program with a quote from Jefferson about when we will we'll be living in the streets or, you know, our homes will be, we'll lose our homes. I have four friends who are living in their cars, and these are not people who are, you know, these are people that at one time had good jobs. One is an engineer. Mm-hmm. One mm-hmm. was my good friend, a woman, who um, who is a, she she's a, a basically a massage therapist but it was a um you know it was a health thing and mm-hmm. um one had a has a, had a bookstore that went bankrupt and one had a had a small business so these are people that are i mean you know it's not just it's not just the people like the the vietnam vets that that are confused or something it's these are Ordinary people can't get jobs anymore, and they're actually literally living in the streets. But you don't see it because they're in their cars. You know, it's it were in other words, half the there's a huge part of the country that is experiencing a depression right now, just like in the 1930s. But they're not. You don't see them like in the 1930s. You saw the you saw the bread lines. Now the bread lines are food stamps, and you you have to go to Walmart at midnight in the first of the month to see them. The, mothers lined up to get milk for their babies because the food stamps right. just kicked in. But you, most people don't see that. So ordinary people like where I live, you know, nobody's aware that things are really bad for a lot of people. But these are ordinary people that things are really bad for. But you can, yeah. you, there are other symptoms, too, um, and clues. And that is that you can ride around in neighborhoods and um, I'm seeing it in my own neighborhood, you can see the foreclosures. Mm-hmm. Houses are, are oh, yeah. properties that were, uh, over the years, have been always well kept. Now the grass has grown and the hedges aren't getting cut mm-hmm. and um, the blinds are down because people have abandoned their homes. Mm-hmm. In some ways, in some ways, I think it's worse than the Great Depression. I mean, I've heard that during the 30s, people were still friendly. You know, they weren't afraid of strangers. So, if there was somebody that came to your door and needed food, you you would give it to people. Would give it to them. But now you can't go. People don't go door to door. You know, they'd be arrested for that. You can't even sleep in the park anymore. It's illegal to to put right. a blanket over yourself in the park. It's unbelievable. I mean, what are you supposed to do if you're anyway? Exactly. Yeah, I thought your idea for the the county. Um, you can go to a, a county with like three board members and get that handshake agreement between you know. It's like called two. organizing, agitating, irritating, organizing, <laughs> agitating, and resisting. That's what has to happen here. Yeah, if you've got yeah. the ear of your local politician, that's the thing. They, you can talk to a county commissioner. Actually, uh, L.A. County has more money apparently than 33 states, and um, I actually talked to the L.A. commissioner. I mean, he didn't 
he didn't, you know, he was polite and moved on to the next person. But the thing is, I could approach him. He's he's available to be approached. Yeah. Um. And 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 most of them are. You know that uh, yourself, House, from having worked in uh, Palm Beach County. Um, uh, yeah. Um, government. Yeah. Uh, that it, it will that you can begin. I mean, and some of these people are smart enough to come mm-hmm. to some of these conclusions or do the research. Yeah, but we have to. Yeah, once we have to get it. This they... is a lifeline, not only not only for feeding and fueling small businesses. We've got to see this as a lifeline for our children, where our schools and our public facilities that serve children, public facilities that serve elderly. I mean, you look around you and you see housing developments for elderly not completed because there is no money. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This That's is a lifeline. There's, there's no reason not to have no money. I mean, we have the money. Money is just credit. All of our money is credit. And when we... That's what my whole book, Web of Debt, is about, that money is not what we think. And we've got it. It's being artificially constricted. It's like money is like blood, and there's a tourniquet on our our blood supply where it's being siphoned off by this parasitic growth that is the, um, you know, this whole money-making money sort of mentality of a a whole social class, which includes... Me, I mean, it includes all of us. We all feel all like us, yeah. we all feel yeah. like our money needs to make money for old age because we don't have a decent social security system. We don't have a decent medical system, medical care. So those the three things that you have to have money for, or you feel you have to, is old age, um, health care, and to put your kids through college. You feel like you have to give them that. So those are things like places like Sweden and Norway. They really fought for that. That they they did suffer in the the beginning of the 20th century. They were um, they and people died. I mean, it was they they were fighting for the, the labor unions and there was a whole labor mo- movement. And they now they pay 50% taxes, but so do we. If you count in the hidden taxes, we're paying 50% taxes too. But they are covered for their. They've got their old age covered. They've got. A, 100% health care covered healthcare. and they've got and they've got um, for yeah for college they've got college mm-hmm. covered so they don't have to worry I, I was in Sweden for um, it was a book thing that I was invited to give and um, they, there's a, just a different mentality there you know people just sort of enjoy their lives and they, they don't they don't seem to be so into having a better house and so forth all the houses look kind of the same but so mm-hmm. that the focus is all on more social things and books and literature and art and going taking the boat out and going fishing you know in the summer yeah, yeah. quality of life things yeah um but just that that whole comment you made about the, the county thing and and you could you I sat back, I was listening you said that they could we could take the same assets the bank have now and like the the uh, banded houses, and use them um, for collateral, the way they're doing. Um, and one of the reasons they weren't giving those uh, refinancing mortgages is because they were getting money from the government um, every time they foreclosed on a home. Anyway, so they didn't have any incentive to do it. But if we held those houses in a public bank, like you said, and or a um, county bank, and and use them as assets, that's just a it's 
it's such a simplistic uh, thought and idea. It is simple. You know, but and I encourage so everybody to, to yeah, I encourage everyone to go to publicbankinginstitute.org and watch the video of Victoria Grant. She's she's 12 and she lays it out so simplistically. And the thing is that we know that they know. Mm-hmm. We know this. Hey, House, thanks so much for your call from Chicago by way of Palm Beach County. <laughs> good to <laughs> hear from you and good to have thanks. you. I second you. Ellen Brown, thank you so very much uh, for being with us tonight. Thank uh, you. I'm encouraging my audience to read Web of Debt. Don't just read about it. Read the book. And also to go to Move Your Money Project. Move your money out of these books, uh, out of these banks. <laughs> Just, you know, bring them down. It's like pulling every time, every time, uh, I mean, I know you all stuck on going in the bank and making pictures with your telephone and putting a thing in the other thing uh, <laughs> and all these conveniences but you are making a path of convenience to your own detriment by continuing to do business with these big banks. Take your money out. If you live in North Dakota, go to the public bank. If you don't have a public bank, start calling members of your state legislature. Start calling your mayor and saying something has to be done, here's an answer, why aren't you responding to the answers? Ellen Brown, thank you so very much for being with us tonight. Um, My pleasure. I'm hoping that people get smart. (laughs) Okay, thank you. You know, um, there are people out there who who, who know to take their money out of Wells Fargo's bank, but then they put it under the mattress and leave it at that. That's not the way to do it. It doesn't build a future for our children. It doesn't stabilize us. And as long as these banks have the power, they have the reserves, and they're pulling the strings, uh, the Federal Reserve Bank is pulling the strings one way and they are pulling it another way, we're stuck. Mm-hmm. And you know that black folks out there, you know when America has a cold, we have pneumonia. <laughs> and this is one of the sicknesses that America has, our dependence on large institutions that have no connection to us. Ellen, I hope that we can have you back when uh, you finished with the, the new book. Okay. And that we can call on you when we get confused over here on our common ground <laughs> about our money. Because um, people walk away from these kind of discussions and say, well, what did she say? Read the book. It's Web of Debt. Okay. And you might also understand uh, more about all of these uh, systems that manipulate us by reading her other book, um, 
the, the I call it I've been call, referring to it Ellen as the medicine book, but I know that's not the name of the book. Um, <laughs> um I have several, but you might mean forbidden medicine. That was forbidden um, medicine. That, yeah. Yes. Okay. You've been a wonderful guest, and thank you so very much. And we hope to see you back here soon. Okay. Thank you, Janice. Bye. Okay. Bye bye. That was Ellen H. Brown. Read the book Web of Debt. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, uh, we're going to take pause and talk about America in the context of this weekend, remembering the Tulsa race riots, the largest racially motivated conflict in America, which occurred between May 31st and June 1st in 1921. This is our common ground, and we'll be right back. I'm Janice Graham, and you're listening to Our Common Ground. children don't exercise regularly. The average school-aged child watches four to six hours of TV every day, bombarded by commercials for fast food and junk. How you make these kinds of lifestyle changes in your kids is to make them yourself. Make the effort. Fight childhood obesity. A message from the government. Hey, India, it's Janice. Us talk chicks got to stick together. You and your real, raw, Right now, 11 a.m. to 1 p.m., Monday through Friday, and me and my brave, black, and bold, Saturdays, 10 p.m. There's no doubt, us talk chicks, we know where the real talk is, and we know what to do on their radio. You. It's a cold and crazy world, as raging outside, but baby, me and all my girls are bringing on the fire. Show a little leg, gotta see me your chest. Our coming ground, speaking truth to power. And I'm Sam. I'm Candace Grant. Our common ground. The bottom line is that 
our president-elect has inherited a system that represents the most oppressive system in terms of justice in the world. And there is a difference between justice and charity. There is a difference between service and advocacy. And we are at a point where we've got to look in the mirror. As John Henry Clark said, when we wake up in the morning, we've got to look in the mirror and decide whose side are we going to be on. Amen. Are we going to be advocates for trickle-down economic prosperity, or are we going to be advocates for our people? Three, And we thank our guest, Ellen Brown, for joining us here at Our Common Ground. Our number is 347-838-9852. And we're at the bottom of the hour, the second page at Our Common Ground tonight. And um, we've had a tough, tough week. And it seems the onslaught of current events just keep coming at us at the point where we um, are just distracted, distracted, distracted. But this week in 1921, one of the largest scale racially motivated conflicts happened between the white and black communities of Tulsa, Oklahoma, in which the wealthiest African-American community in the United States, the Greenwood District, also known as the Negro Wall Street or the Black Wall Street, was burned to the ground. Aerial firebombing of black residential neighborhoods were reported during the 16 hours of the onslaught and assault. Over 800 people were admitted to local hospitals with injuries. More than 6,000 Greenwood residents were arrested and detained in a prison camp. An estimated 10,000 were left homeless, and 35 city blocks composed of 1,256 residences were destroyed by fire, and the official count of the dead was 39, but estimates of black fatalities have been in the hundreds. The events of the riot were omitted from local and state history. The Tulsa race riot of 1921 was rarely mentioned in history books, classrooms, or even in private. Blacks and whites alike grew into middle age unaware of what had taken place. In 1996, the state legislature commissioned a report completed in 2001 to establish the historical record. That effort was led by Attorney Charles Ogletree. It has approved some compensatory actions, such as scholarships for descendants of survivors, economic development of Greenwood, 
and a memorial and a memorial park which was dedicated in 2010 to the victims in Tulsa. How many of you really understand um how Tulsa is the backdrop for what is going on in this country today. Our number is 347-838-9852. We have not moved much from that place. It took more than 40 years for our federal government, the state government, and the local government to even admit the event where 6,000 Greenwood residents were arrested, but they were under attack and put in a prison camp, and 10,000 residents were left homeless and 35 city blocks, which composed of uh, 1,256 residences, were destroyed by fire, and most, all but a few of them were black. Now, the official count of the dead was 39. And I'm, I'm asking you tonight if you can see forward as we move into one era of assault on black people, voter suppression, violation of voter uh, rights, specifically in Florida and Wisconsin. What's happening in Wisconsin is not isolated, is not insulated from the issue of race. Can you look forward and see how this is going to be entered into the history books? Before we go to our phones, I want to remind you that next week at Our Common Ground, Suzanne Brooks is going to be our guest. She is an activist, an educator, a social entrepreneur. She is the CEO of the International Association for Women of Color Day, and she is the author of The Constructive Extermination of Women of Color, Consequences of Perpetual Socioeconomic Marginalization. She is um, also a teacher, an organizer, and a specialist in civil rights and women's issues. She's the former director of Affirmative Action in a major university. The title of the book, The Constructive Extermination of Women of Color. We're going to go to our phones, 111, you're on the air. Thank you for your call and thank you for holding. Hi, Janice, it's Suzanne Brooks. Because that was perfect timing. I had no idea you were with us this week. 
<laughs> well, I was sitting really, out there. I was very interested in what your guest was speaking about. Um, one thing I wanted to throw out right away: Why is it we don't have some of our more affluent people of color working to establish those banks? Well, you know, the thing is, you if if you're familiar with the blank, black uh, banks that went under. Um, there was an awful lot of accountability within the community of those banks. And people who are part of the the greed culture, they don't want anything to do with accountability. They would rather struggle to be part of or a branch of or have some crumbs from the institutionalized commercial banks like Bank of Boston, uh, Bank of um, of America, Sun Bank, Chase, uh, City. They would rather have that. Well, I do. I understand that, but uh, but I'm not saying that they should do that. But I'm saying surely there are some people with morals and ethics among our communities, uh, among those people who are themselves affluent. Well, the, the you know, part of it, too, is that you really don't have to be affluent to start a bank. No, I understand that, but it's a lot easier. Yeah, it is a lot easier. Um, and um, I, I think that people just get afraid of anything that has to do with risk of their personal finances. Yes, I. But they put the they put them into bling bling, and they put them into cars, and they put them into uh, houses. Don't but... get me started, Suzanne. <laughs> Do it's not just a get thought for started. the audience. You know, people need to pressure the people in our community that have resources to develop inst- the kinds of institutions that serve their needs, but our needs too. But, you know, the other thing is that anything that is worth constructing for the betterment of our people and it has to be institutionalized, organized, and it has to be well-managed, people don't want to put the work in. Well, some of us do, but, I mean, some of us, um, a couple of us have been discussing this lately, um, it's all well and good to say, yeah, well, we can do this in the community. But some of us um, have not had jobs for 10, 20 years because yep. we're blackballed. Mm-hmm. We have no income. We're living on the fringes of homelessness. So we're trying to just keep food on the table and the lights on. So it's not possible for us to do that. It's some, it seems possible. I mean, just this week alone I discovered that my insurance company – uh, up my co-pays 400%. So mm-hmm, I, I can no longer well, af- way, afford that. That's Even though way. I'm paying for insurance in amounts that exceed what I'm collecting, they have now raised it so high that I can't afford to pay the co-pay. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And that, I, and that's, that's certainly the way that the insurance industry is fighting back at the national health care um, uh, legislation. Mm-hmm. Well, let me tell you one interesting thing before I 
uh, go back and sit and listen, as I've been doing. Um, I had a friend who was present in Oklahoma during the, the um, I don't want to call it a conflict or a riot, because it really wasn't that. It was the people. It was an just, assault. Yes, it was an attack mm-hmm. on black people by white people. <laughs> and uh, and it was no more than that. Um, and he was there and uh, talked about that. He he. In fact, I wrote a song about him, and I used to visit him in the nursing home. But the other thing is that that's not the only place that's happened in the United States. No, that happened in Arkansas. That's happened in uh, New Orleans. That's happened in many places. Um, and makes your show so valuable because people don't know that any of these things happen. Mhm, mhm. I mean, if you if you think about it, you know, most people know about Rosewood because of the the because of the um the movie. Yes. Most people know of Tulsa because it was called Black Wall Street. But there are a lot of stories and there are some recent stories, Suzanne that people are not aware of. When we, we you know, when you think about what was happening 3 years ago with all the church burnings or 4 years ago, mm-hmm. that was all white people implementing white eminent domain. They did that in because Sacramento because of the too. location of those churches. Yeah, did it wasn't you know that? really ab- about that. Pardon me? Did you know that something like that happened in Sacramento too? Yes. It was all over the country. But they, in West they Palm shut Beach, down. Florida, mm-hmm. all, of, all of a sudden, back in the late 80s, uh, early 90s, um, homes where people had lived for generations were being burned down, were, 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 were catching a fire, let's put it that way, because they were skirting, they were on the border of the downtown, and the developers needed the land. And that it, was in the you know. It, and it also it, happened to Latinos. Yes, because and, and part of it had to do with land grabbing by developers. I mean, you know, mob. The, the 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 fathers of the mob wives or whoever. <laughs> uh, these people were not playing when it was time to do what they felt that they had to do in order to gain their wealth, and it was happening in black communities all over the country because blacks had settled near where the downtown had been developed and the da- and being downtown had become some kind of elite location and blacks and latinos were latinos were not selling their properties so they just burned them out same thing happened in rosewood mm-hmm. same thing about tulsa mm-hmm. so um it's 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 just amazing that we keep repeating all of this this history, but not connecting the dots, not connecting the dots at all. You'll be happy to know I went to a uh, an event today for people that are working to end the death penalty in California, where we have almost 800 people on death row, and. Um, 
Ben Jealous, the NACP national president, was there. And I had the opportunity to talk to him, and I gave him a copy of the book you'll be discussing. Oh, great. Uh And asked him to read it. (laughs) Um, And Larry Pinckney has just reviewed it. It's on Black Commentator. Okay. Which I'm having a problem with because one of my my subscription, I can't remember which one of my email addresses, (laughs) and I keep trying to get in. And uh, I can't get in. I'll send you a copy of it. (laughs) Okay. Well, we're looking forward to having you next next Saturday night here at Our Common Ground uh, to talk about your book. Not next Saturday, the one after that. The one after that. I'm sorry. Um, Because I think that the marginalization is something that we – we we know, we see, but we don't see. Right. And and it's all around us, and it has to do with our mothers and our aunts and our daughters, and and how things work uh, in our own community, as well as externally. So Suzanne Brooks, thanks for your call. <laughs> You're welcome. And we look forward to having you on uh, June 16th. Yes. And good luck to your event on June 9th. Okay, thanks. Where are you calling from? Sacramento, California. Sacramento. Okay. That's um, Suzanne Brooks. She's going to be our our guest on June 16th to talk about her book, The Constructive Extermination of Women of Color, and we hope that you will join us. How many of you really do know about the ways in which we are being assaulted? I mean, we're almost going back to the 40s and 50s where even in good company, in proper company, it was not... Uh, acceptable to see some of the very things that we see going on in the public around racial attitudes. But I am going to say this, that the price of apathy toward civic affairs is to be ruled by evil men. Who's your number one evil person for the week? I know you have a number one evil person for the week. Our number is 347-838-9852, and you are listening to Our Common Ground. Who's your evil person of the week? Uh, I mean, the Mitoskitch sketch never, ever, um, misses. He's going to be on there um, forever. But what are you thinking about Scott, Rick Scott, the governor of Florida, who is defying, by the way, who has defying every one of his election commissioners 
in every county, 67 counties in Florida, and every one of the election commissioners saying they are not purging their voter registration rolls in the way ordered by the uh, Department of Elections of the state, as ordered by Rick Scott. And he's standing up to the attorney general and saying, um, giving him the flyby on the finger. This is the kind of audacious gall that racists in this country. When You know, when they said they wanted their country back, this is the kind of stuff they're talking about. They want their country back. They want to be able to do what they want when they want it, and they want you to go away. And and I certainly couldn't um, come to the airwaves to not mention the fact that um, George Zimmerman, the murderous killer of um, Trayvon Martin, has been ordered to surrender, and his bond has been revoked. Um, but what will that mean? Then you've got, you know, the, the 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 mega lies of the week. Scott Walker is denying he is a target of criminal investigation. Um, this Rick Scott, Rick Scott is an evil man. He's really an evil man. Uh, you've got uh, Joe Walsh who owes over $100,000 in child support payments that he has failed to make, and he defied the court by not showing up. He just didn't show up. He didn't show up. Um, so, you know, we're looking, we're looking at some serious stuff, folks. We're looking at some... Very serious uh, stuff. Um, you know, you've got uh, people like John McCain, who's, you know, he's, uh, there is not a war that this man has not wanted. He is looking to see if we can't get in a war with um, Syria. Then you've got Alan West, who is um, just, I mean, he's psychological. He's pathological. There's no other thing to say about Alan West other than he's pathological. Uh, He wants to talk about the president's uh, drug history, but use history, but he doesn't want to talk about um his crimes against civilians in Iraq uh we're we're not only headed we're in the middle of a race war in the middle of a race war and how about all of you out there who um uh might be waiting tables to fill in or as a full-time job, restaurant workers, it's reported, haven't gotten a raise in two decades. 
Um, and then um, you've got this man. He spends every moment of his life um, trying to configure himself, and that's Mitt Romney. And, you know, and there are a lot of people, there are a lot of ways in which you can can, can criticize this president. But if... If you do, that's your right to do it. And I think there are many areas in which there are legitimate criticism of President Barack Obama. But at the same time, I want to remind those of you who are thinking about not voting that maybe you ought to think about an anti-vote, anti-vote, because three seats, will be up for grabs for nomination over the next five years. Three seats. And the question really is whether or not you want Mitt Romney to be the person who nominates uh, a couple of more Roberts I mean, times are are, are really tough, um, and we've got to start thinking very clearly, it seems to me, um, globally as well as at home about some of these uh, issues. But, you know, some of you may be comforted by the fact that... um, that Oprah Winfrey is bringing back her book club. Um, so I'm not sure um, how we're going to go at this. We're going to take a break, but you can give us a call at 347-838-9852. Before we close out tonight, um, it's it's something to, to 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 think about. I mean, where can you have some successes? And maybe the organizing uh, in your local areas around public banking might be one of them. I felt somehow for many years that George Washington and Alexander Hamilton just left me out by mistake. And we the people... Today, I am an inquisitor, and I am not going to sit here and be an idle spectator to the diminution, the subversion, the destruction of the Constitution. You're listening to Our Common Ground, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Hear truth to power one broadcast at a time. Thank you for joining us. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Our Common Ground, each Saturday, 10 p.m., broadcasting Brave, Bold, and Black. Alternative Activist Empowerment Urban Progressive Talk Radio.
Network's network, nightly call-in talk radio. It's the Black Voice Collaborative, right here on Blog Talk Radio. Enter the Lion's Den. Enter the Lion's Den with LDX at Information Man. Swagger Talk Radio at TruthWorks Network. TruthWorks Network. Into the lion's den. Into the lion's den. Only at TruthWorks Network. Swagger up Wednesdays. Swagger down Thursdays, 10 p.m. Get your swagger on. I'ma bring my people to the light this Royal Lion Mob into the Lion. 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 Into our common ground. Our number 347 838 9852. 347 
Alpho has an uncanny ability to bring both information and insight all at the same time. And uh, for those of you who are fans of our TruthWorks network, we uh, are very excited about having um, finished off an agreement uh, with Left of Black at Duke University with Mark Anthony um, Neal, who is the host of Left of Black, which are discussions with uh, the scholarship community, uh, the many people who are involved in um, writing and research and uh, teaching uh, black studies, African-American history um, all across the country um, who are bringing some scholarly analysis to some of the issues of uh, African-American communities. And we're real pleased to be able to uh, have Left of Black join us as a rebroadcast on uh, TruthWorks Network. And we're working we're working on our holistic health uh, program, uh, programming once a week that I've been excited to have, so I hope you'll keep your eye. The other thing is, uh, if you will, you can go to ourcommonground-talk.ning.com and sign up, and you can get our newsletter. We have an e- we we do have a magazine, Scribbling Race, on our common ground, and we do have um, uh, Scribbling Race is our our weekly newsletter. And on um, we we have an e magazine, um, the Omnibus, which is um, published um, weekly. Um, but if you come to uh, our common ground hyphen talk dot ning dot com, you will be able to sign up. And we will be able to keep you in the loop about what's going on. Um, I'm real pleased to have had to be able to have had um, uh, Ellen Brown with us tonight and um, talk with her about something that I'm I'm really excited about. This whole idea of having uh, public. Uh, banks, because I think that it gives um, it gives us some control over what comes in and what comes out. Hey, listen, thank you for being with us. We'll see you next week here at Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham, speaking truth to power and ourselves. You've been tuned to Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham. Thank you so much for being with us tonight. And don't forget, here, Our Common Ground, each Saturday, 10 p.m., speaking truth to power and ourselves, transforming truth to power, one broadcast at a time. Have a great weekend.
a young 